I was going to talk to you all about God. So I'm in Luke 10.21. That same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and everyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's what I want to talk about. Anybody understand that? Verse 22 again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and everyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Does that seem weird to anybody besides me? This statement that no one knows who the Father is except the Son. That's odd. So what do we do with the entire Tanakh? You see the question? You've got the entire Tanakh that talks about God, And here's Yeshua saying, nobody knows about God except me. So anyway, that sort of struck me as really odd. And then, about the only radio I listen to anymore is Ron Dart, and I enjoy him very much. And he's been talking about the character of God all week. He's been in the Minor Prophets, Hosea, and he spent yesterday talking about Calvin. All of... Calvin, for example, according to him, has got a wrong idea of who God is. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And Hosea talks about God in relation to Israel and talks about God's regarding Israel in terms of marriage and adultery. Then I read an article by my British Mormon guy, And he said that what's happened in churches is people have created this unloving super-God. What happened when the Hebrew Bible hit the Western world is everybody tries to understand God in his own terms. In other words, you bring who you are to the study of God. And... One of the problems with that is that when God hit Greek philosophy, and we've talked about this lots of times, the Greeks didn't get rid of their idea of who God is. They simply took this God and jammed him into that framework. So you have this infinite God. You have an omnipresent God. You have an omniscient God, one that knows everything, one that sees everything, one that is everywhere. Those are all Greek terms. The Hebrew Bible doesn't say any of that. So what happens is you have this Hebrew God that gets jammed into a Greek perspective, and then you get Calvin. Calvin was a really smart guy. Sorry about this, James. He was a lawyer. So what he did is he took God and he fitted him into a legal framework. So he understands God as a lawyer. And Calvinism is basically... How does God exist in a law framework? And what my British Mormon guy was saying is, this God has become so abstract and so impersonal that you can't relate to him and love him. 
he's almost become alien. He is so different to us that it is really hard to develop an emotional relationship to him. And so then what you have is Yeshua who comes along and is a man, and ah, that's a lot easier. And I remember being told in the Episcopal Church that the reason Yeshua came is because God is so great and so magnificent and so far off and so forth that we can't relate to him emotionally. So he came as a man so that we could relate to him emotionally. And what you then have is all of the heresies that grow up about, for example, this wrathful God of the Old Testament. And you've got the loving, gentle Jesus of the New Testament. You've got all that kind of stuff that grows up in the church as people try and explain God in terms that make sense to them. Instead of going to Scripture and seeing how God describes himself. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you about God as he talks about himself in Scripture. And maybe with a little bit of help we can clear up some misunderstandings. By the way, there are serious consequences of not understanding who God is or understanding how he wants to relate to us. And one of those is since you have this super God, this super being that's infinite, everywhere, all the time, knows everything all the time, who is alien to our experience. None of us is that way. And the consequences of that is lots of people don't find this God attractive. They don't see any reason why they should have any relation to him. In fact, that vision of a God is one of the things that makes evolution possible as a religion. In other words, if you look at this God, if you even acknowledge he exists, as some omni, 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 omni Greek kind of philosophy, if you still believe in him, and lots of churches do, that's, that's a good thing, they still believe in him. But what they do is they say, well, God used evolution to do all this. So what, again, they're trying to do is take their understanding of God and jam him into their framework. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was saying, the problem with America is nobody goes to church anymore. And if you look at statistics, approximately 50% or more of America is unchurched. That doesn't mean they're not spiritual or religious, but they don't go to church. And part of the reason for that is the logical inconsistencies that they perceive. And that has consequences. So, let's talk about God. Let's see if we can bring him to a place where we can understand him. I can remember listening to a Bible teacher 30 years ago when I was first starting in it. I think it was Chuck Missler. And Chuck was a good guy. I enjoyed him. I'm not knocking him. But one of the things that he said is God is all-knowing, all-present, and God cannot learn because he knows everything. That's this Greek omni, omni, omni God. 
outside of time. He can't learn. Nothing that you do surprises him. Everything that you do is ordered by him. Nothing happens except he makes it happen. Anybody heard all that stuff? That's not scriptural. That is humans taking this omni-omni super-god and trying to exist in that kind of a regime. Now, first off, let's start with this god. He has emotions. Let me give you some scripture, just so you don't think I'm leading you astray. Genesis 6, verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's pretty early in the Bible, right? Ephesians 4, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. Rejoice with him. Isaiah 62, The Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Those are all emotional terms. This is not some mechanical, philosophical force up there. This is a being that has emotions. Isaiah 65, verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And I just grabbed some at random. There's lots of them out there. So the first thing is this God that we worship is an emotional being, just like you, because we're made in the image of God. So the fact that he has emotions just like we have emotions is a real important thing because if you have a God like that, you can relate to him. You can relate to the fact that he loves you and you can return that love as opposed to this philosophical thing up there that is omni, omni, omni and is way too far off an alien for you to relate to. Let's look at something else. God wants relationships. In fact, as I say, I listen to Ron Dart all the time because I very much enjoy his teaching. And one of the things he says is, I have a book, which I haven't read. But the name of the book I find fascinating. It's called The Lonely God. That's a fascinating title because one of the things that this omni-omni-God is he doesn't need anything. He himself is complete. He himself is self-sufficient. There's nothing that he needs. And you go to passages like God says to Israel, If I were hungry, would I come and ask you? The cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. So you sort of get the idea from there that God doesn't really depend on us for anything. But he does. What he depends upon us for is emotional connection. 
He depends upon us for love. He depends upon us for respecting Him. Those are things that He cannot do for Himself. So by definition, love and respect are something that are given to someone by somebody else. That's sort of the definition of the term. And without somebody else, God can't get those things. And he wants them. He calls himself an emotional being. These are things he wants. He desires. The other thing he wants to do is to be reconciled to us. Remember, we're the ones that walked away. God didn't walk away from us. We walked away from him. And what he wants to do is to reconcile himself with us. Give you some scriptures on that. Romans 5. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God wants us to be reconciled to him. Remember I said this is an emotional being. This is a person that you can relate to because he relates to us in human terms. One of the things that gets said over and over, mostly by Yeshua and Paul too, Matthew 18, this is Yeshua, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this idea of being childlike, and back in the passage that I started off with, Luke 10 again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So this idea of being children is also there. Why is that metaphor being used? Anybody come from a family? Now, lots of families become dysfunctional. It happens. And that's because families are composed of people. But when a child is born, that child loves and trusts his parents. Now that trust may be destroyed and that love may be messed up. But the initial attachment of a child to his parents is one of love and trust. It is just the way it happens. They don't have to be taught to do that. In fact, they have to be taught not to love their parents. And I'm sorry to say that that happens. But the idea is that a child understands at a fundamental level that his parents' motivation toward him is for good. That starts off when he's feeding at the breast. And so this trust that the parent loves him and wants nothing but good for him endures being swatted on the diaper, 
you know, all the things that a parent does to a child, and as I say, eventually it, it can be destroyed. But, you know, the normal stuff that happens with a parent and a child, you know, where you discipline them and you take care of them and so forth, all of those things create a bond of love and trust. And the deal about this is that a child knows at a fundamental emotional level that his parents' motivation toward him is good. And as I say, he has to be taught that that may not be the case. It is not something that happens naturally. So, let's look at God. Jeremiah 29. Well, thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So what God tells us over and over again in the Tanakh is that his motivation toward us or toward Israel is ultimately for good. That's what he wants. And what happens is, of course, Israel, by going away, and humanity, by going away, messes that up, but it's God's heart that he be good to us, that he be reconciled to us, and that we have a parent-child relationship with him that is healthy. What he has right now is a parent-rebellious child relationship. It's sort of like the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want my inheritance and I'm leaving. That's what the message is. And so he goes off and notice that the father doesn't punish him. What happens is his rebellion and leaving has consequences. And he goes out because of his attitude and wastes all of his inheritance and winds up feeding pigs. His father didn't punish him. His father simply gave him what he asked for. And the consequences are that he winds up feeding pigs and would gladly eat the pig food if they didn't count the husks and wouldn't make him pay for it. And so what he says is, I will go back to my father and I'm unworthy to be a son, but maybe he'll give me a job. And of course the father when his son finally comes back, rejoices because the father wants a parent-child relationship with this guy. And then we have the problem with the other brother who is angry and resentful, but that's another story. But my point is, God wants to be reconciled to us. God's thoughts toward us are good. They are for good. And when we stray from him, what happens is we wind up feeding the pigs. That's not God is mad at us. That's because we have gone away from the relationship that he wants to have with us. Now, don't get me wrong. There are other cases, specifically when Israel breaks covenant with God. And then what we have is an adulterous thing. And when Israel breaks covenant, he does punish. So I'm not suggesting that God never punishes, but I'm saying most of what happens to us 
is a result of being like the prodigal son. We just want to go off and do it our own way. And what happens is a misunderstanding of the nature of God. If you're a Calvinist, for example, and I hope you aren't, but if you are, what you think is when you wind up feeding the pigs is God is hammering you. That's the Calvinist attitude. When you're out there feeding the pigs because you've gone away from God, your attitude is, I'm being punished. No, you're not. You're just suffering the consequences of your own stupidity. Calvinists believe that everything that happens to anybody at any time is the result of the actions and choices of God. And then they go through all sorts of legal rationalization trying to make that fit with scripture. And they're very bright people. So they're very convincing. Calvinists are not stupid. And they care. I'm just saying their theology is wrong. Because that's not how God portrays himself. God portrays himself as a father, a person, a husband, someone who wants a relationship with you and wants to be reconciled so that he can bring you back into his house and he can bless you like a child. Sadly, most of us would rather feed pigs, which is where lots of people are, is they'd rather be out there feeding the pigs than in the presence of a loving parent. And the problem with that, of course, is a loving parent has rules of the household. If you're going to live in my house, you've got to keep your room clean. There's all sorts of stuff you've got to do, and there's stuff that I don't want you to do. You can't bring drugs into my house. You can't bring prostitutes into my house. You can't do this, that, or the other thing in my house. So people then choose, I'd rather be out here feeding pigs. And as I say, they then look at this and say, oh, I'm being punished by a wrathful and mean God. No, you're not. So, what I'm suggesting to you is get rid of this Greek philosophical legalistic thinking. Just flush it. It's not right. God is a person. God is emotional. God has thoughts of good towards you. God wants to be reconciled. God wants you in his house. God wants to do you good. Get rid of all the rest of that junk.